Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Larry H. Russell, host of Celtics Beat and author of Fall of the Boston Celtics. Thank you yet again for downloading the number one podcast on the web which covers the NBA's winningest franchise, Celtics Beat. CLNS Radio truly values your patronage. Because of your loyalty to making Celtics Beat the most downloaded weekly Celtics podcast online, we would love to offer a free copy of my critically acclaimed book available at clnsradio.com slash lhrbook. That's clnsradio.com slash lhrbook. Happy reading and enjoy today's broadcast. Today is Sunday, March 27th, 2016. This is Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio, and I'm Larry H. Russell. Today's featured guest will be Kevin Pelton of ESPN. This is our 150th edition of this broadcast, and today it is being presented by SeatGeek and American Farmers Network. Here on Easter Sunday to those celebrating, thanks for tuning in and finding time for us on this holiday. Or maybe the day after to those of you who listen to us to start your work week. But we appreciate your patronage as always, and we appreciate it more when we can come here and discuss a flawless week for the Celtics, which on the court was the case. Hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. Celts made it four in a row last night after they hung on by the skin of their balls against the Suns, 102.99. Great first half-ish. Good enough second half. Uh, How happy are we with that result, though, after the Nets have now very annoyingly won their last two games, including beating the Pacers earlier in the evening? Almost, I I can't wait for the regular season to end. So this draft watch thing, checking those scores every morning is becoming a chore. But sticking with the Celts, a win in the bank for the Celtics, still keeping the dream of 50 wins alive for some of you who have that as an obtainable goal. I don't see that now, particularly with this three-game swing coming up here. In fact, I'd be shocked if the Celtics don't lose at least two of these next three, if not them all. They're not going to be favored in any of these games. And watch out for that Lakers game at the back end of the trip the following Sunday. Last game of a long road trip has for teams historically been an easy game to mail in and get caught off guard. But last week's show... We kept it pretty upbeat because outside of the Rockets' loss at home, none of those losses were really dreadful losses. Boston wasn't favored in any of those games. Their opponents all had some great wing players, and that was really going to highlight that Crowder loss, which it did. And as I've been saying pretty much all year, uh, the team has made as much progress as they could possibly make. And I feel like almost every abstract goal has been obtained and a lot of concrete goals as well. Although, of course, there's still the end of the regular season and the playoffs there for that. A lot of players on the team have made strides. And there was a time and point during the season where I wasn't sure that that was there. We all know about the season Crowder was having before his injury. Sollinger, too, although his last what was last game or two, last night, <laughs> they have not really been all that hot. But I'm also happy. We're just going to talk about last night's game against the Suns. Very happy now to see Kelly Olenek. He seems like he's fully back from his injury. Had a nice one last night, 7-10 from the field off the bench. Now, one player under a lot of fire from fans and the media. And I don't want to steal our guest's thunder as well because we're going to have to get into this with him as Mr. Pelton was big on this dude when he was coming out of the draft two years ago. And that's Marcus Smart. Yes, this has been the story of the week, particularly as the Celts, while they have won these last four games, 
We're four wins over cupcakes, especially with Toronto not having Lowry on Wednesday, but this play of Smart are seemingly dominating the storylines. Or maybe not the play of Smart, the overall play, because Chris Forzerberg of ESPN has gone on a crusade recently where he put out another column a few hours ago. Literally, I got up at 2.15 this morning. First thing on my Twitter feed was a small little piece just filed to ESPN.com, authored by Forsberg, that heavily featured praise from Coach Brad Stevens right after the Suns win, talking about all the hustle plays, the rebounding, really that's leading the points. Saw Chris plug in a video of Smart coming with a ball down low on the offensive glass amidst four Suns, and then finding Jarepko for a huge three, which extended the lead again before Phoenix made another run to nearly steal it. That was probably the play of the game. And this is where Chris... And other smart backers have been harping on those plays, his defense, and and that's still leading to the team in the unit he's on, still producing positive net results when he's on the court, which I know Chris alluded to in another piece he wrote earlier in the week on the website. But the shooting, or the lack thereof, to say the very least, is getting to be a hard pill for Boston fans to swallow. It would be interesting, hypothetically. If Smart was a second-round pick and he was doing what he's doing now, I think you'd see him get a lot of credit as a scrappy, winning type of player, which is what Brad Stevens referred to him last night in a paraphrase, but he wasn't. He was sixth in a draft that had a lot of hype to it. Many people watched his games in college, along with many other of the players in the top draft of that year. So he came here with a fair amount of expectations on him. And is he living up to them? Uh, Well, despite him producing positive results for his team, the individual offense, be it the outside shot, not being able to finish around the basket, getting a shot block, I mean, really nothing. I mean, it's been absolutely heinous, I mean, for lack of a better word. Many people, Bob Ryan included, who on this show has attached the future all-star label to him, they really weren't looking for this guy to be the basketball equivalent of Ray Ordonez. And a lot of people have been hopping off the deck in the past week after some horrifying stat lines in the box score. I mean, no one of our listeners in the Facebook group, Josh, just saw this message this morning asking me if there are examples of guys coming into the league as bad shooters and improving enough to become average to good shooters. And yes, Josh, there are plenty right off the top of my head. I don't want to go on forever, but we'll use a Celtics example. Dennis Johnson, terrible, terrible shooter, especially earlier in his career. Worked hard in off-seasons, got to the point where he was at least competent, especially in the clutch, and especially with his time with the Celts, making that elbow jumper. Oh, of course, that doesn't really exist in the NBA anymore. But away from the Celtics, recent player, Derek Rose, another flat. That was the adjective that was used to describe his outside shot. And even remember his free throw shooting at Memphis. He was awful. But rookie year, second year, flat was what it was the adjective People use to describe his shooting, or his shot particularly. But Rose kept working to the point where by his fourth year in the league, he actually became a good shooter. That's what Smart's going to have to do. Work. Work hard, kid. Thousand jumpers in the day this offseason, not 300. I do not want to read 300 when reading offseason stories on the Celtics. A thousand. And then after that, we're just going to hope for the best results, hopefully, beginning next season because I... I want Smart to be a little more than an intangible guy myself or a defensive stopper. I'm not sure that's something you want out of the sixth pick in the draft. It isn't the worst-case scenario. He's not going to be a bust, but it's not ideal either. And I want to save this conversation here with our guest, Kevin Pelton, which we can go to very shortly and talk about other Celtics-related topics as well, particularly preseason projections. Remember all those computers that predicted Boston having the kind of season they're having now where they still have an outside shot, a bleak shot? But a shot nonetheless at 50 wins. We're going to get into that with Kevin. But before we get to Kevin here, let's bang out a little business. First off, ticket giveaway. We're announcing another winner on next weekend's show for the April 6th contest against the New Orleans Pelicans. Pair of tickets to that game on Wednesday, April 6th. Again, first New Orleans entry is simple. Like Celtics Beat on Facebook, facebook.com slash Celtics Beat. Like that page. That's it. Done. You're in. Then we got a huge game Monday, April 11th at home against Charlotte. Follow at CLNS underscore LHR on Twitter. That's at CLNS underscore LHR. Give that a follow, and you're in to win tickets to that game, which is going to be a big, big game for playoff implications and seeding. So very simple entry, folks. Like Salix Beat on Facebook. Follow at CLNS underscore LHR and put yourself in a drawings for tickets. Winners will be announced on the next two episodes. Now, 
Let's pause for a brief moment for a little programming note, courtesy of yours truly, and then we will come right back with Kevin Pelton of ESPN in the studio apartment. No, that's not a Colt Cabana ripoff. I literally live in a studio apartment. But roll it. CLNS Radio's leading online coverage of the Boston Celtics is now even more comprehensive than ever. From the Celtics postgame show to the Garden Report to CSL and to Celtics Beat, CLNS Radio will now provide basketball fans game day coverage before anyone else in the lead-up to tip-off. The all-new Boston Celtics pregame show with myself, Larry H. Russell, will be released on clnsradio.com on game days at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, making it the first pregame show to air anywhere. We will give you a featured interview from someone providing opposing insight, a pregame report, and go on a Celtics draft pick watch all in just 15 minutes. Available game days at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on CLNS Radio and CLNSRadio.com, the leading online provider of audio-video coverage of the Boston Celtics. All right, let's bring in our guest, ESPN NBA insider Kevin Pelton. You can check him out on ESPN, read his work on ESPN.com. And he's probably making his case for the best podcast guest in the digital NBA universe. Kevin, I know it's a quality, not a quantity thing for you, but you certainly lead the league in podcast appearances, I believe. Well, I think that's just because I'm the last person left who does not have a podcast of my own on the NBA, right? Everyone else does at that this point? That is true. Oh, my goodness. NBA. It's the whole world now. Oh, yeah. It feels like the next president, next president of the United States is going to have a podcast. Yeah, yes or no? We got it to that one. <laughs> it'll, it'll be the fireside chat of the new generation. I know I'm kind of. It's, it's, I got to even get to you too, because before we even get to, because before we get to this basketball thing and how you know the world is making, I am kind of interested in you. Tell me what is your value over replacement journalist? <laughs> That's a tough thing to estimate on your own, isn't it? Uh, I feel like you've got an algorithm to figure that out. No, you know I have not. Uh, I have not sat down to calculate it. I mean, I, I think the good thing is is we know that uh, value over replacement is a quantity st- stat. So I think that uh, as long as my quality is above replacement level, the quantity is going to bring me home. It is, especially that you're on this show now. But get to get to the basketball thing. Preseason projections for each team. There were speaking of algorithms. There were tons of those projections before the season that had. Stuck with, start with the Celtics, of course, Celtics show. But yeah. the Celtics possibly around even exceeding 50 wins is starting to look like they're going to win around that. I think it's doubtful they're going to get to that 50 number, but it's looking as if they're going to settle in and around high 40s, which I think shocked me. I had them kind of where you did without the math, you know, 41-43, and would not have been surprised at 38 or 39, maybe even taking a small step back from last year. But anyways... Actually, before we get into that, your projection system spit out projections similar to my intuitions, if not a little lower than a 500 or maybe a little worse. Before we get into that, just for the sake of our audience who may not be as familiar with your work on ESPN Insider, if you want to kind of sum up the Shaney system, maybe talk about you know, notable differences between your projection system than some of the other ones. Well, so Shaney is a projection system I developed after uh, reading about Nate Silver's Pakoda many, many years ago, back when he rolled that out at Baseball Prospectus before going on to predict the outcome of presidential Every elections single congressional and podcasts, uh, before he went on to basically take over the world. I think it's, it's safe to say at this point. And uh, so I started out, you know, kind of similar to what he did on, on the baseball side, trying to project player performance. What makes things a lot trickier on the NBA side is, you know, in baseball you just add up all the individual stats and boom that's the team's performance and basketball part of why i love analyzing basketball is it's much more complex than that there's a lot more interplay between various teammates and you know how their skills combine so uh about 2000 i think it was 2008 uh when i was writing for basketball prospectus the sister site for baseball prospectus at that point i unveiled the shaney projection system that both used these player projections and then also some team factors to try to combine those into uh, team projections. Nowadays, the fact is, actually, I don't really use the uh, the team projections very much. I've kind of defaulted to ESPN's real plus minus, which has had a much better track record. You know, I think maybe there is too much complexity along the lines of what I said uh, to predict predict team performance very well, at least from just from the box score stats. Uh, now, Nate Silver himself at five thirty eight has rolled out 
Carmelo projections that include both box score stats and RPM. And, and they, along the lines of the RPM projections we did, had the Celtics as the number two team in the East, I think, coming into the season. Yes. And, uh, yeah, in that 50-win range. I think it was 51. The final RPM projection, uh, they were they were over 50 all summer, and then we figured out that we needed to tweak it a little bit to regress everything to the mean uh, to make those projections more accurate historically. And they ended up at 48 wins was the final number we settled on. I think that's what's probably going to be the number, too. That's actually what's pretty – that's pretty scary because I remember when I saw that real plus – I think it was a Tom Haverstrow article. I, I, I Forgive me if I'm wrong, if it wasn't or if it was someone else's – that I'm not crediting. I, yeah, you're right. I did not see the 48. I remember the 51. I remember all the Atlanta Hawks comparisons and whatnot. And there was you talk about the difficulties in analyzing the data and putting things together when it comes to basketball as opposed to baseball because baseball isn't more individual sport. It is so concrete. It's easier to uh, compare even different eras in, in many different situations because of how concrete it is. And I was even going ready to ask something, you know, down the future, the challenges it is with the NBA and having so much data and doing, even knowing what to do with the data, but sticking with the Celtics, I even, one of the reasons why I really wasn't buying those projections be, was because it seemed like they were putting a heavy emphasis on how they played in the second half of last year when they played very well. And I could see that, but I had there were two things for me. One, I was I was factoring chemistry. I wasn't so sure how a guy like David Lee was going to fit in, and he didn't. But yeah. I was thinking along the lines of I thought that last year's Celtics team, when they made that huge push in the second half of the season, and they had I think the fourth best record in the NBA. I may be wrong after some like February first date or something like that throughout the remainder of the season. I thought they were catching a lot of teams off guard. They had the big wins against like Memphis at home, Atlanta at home, and I thought you could see those teams taking the Celtics as sort of like just another stop on the road and they brought like a B minus C plus effort. And it's sometimes it's like so hard for these systems to kind of calculate that and see how that's going to play out in the following year. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're not wrong to be skeptical of the performance in the second half. Uh, this is something we looked at probably more with the jazz who are another team that surged in the second half of the season in their case, other than the addition by subtraction of Ennis Cantor, it wasn't really that they went out and got guys like the Celtics did with, you know, Jay Crowder earlier in the season, but playing a bigger role after the deadline and uh, then Isaiah Thomas, obviously. So in, in a situation like that, when the talent is mostly the same, the whole season tends to project how you're going to do the next year better than that second half surge, which I think has mostly been the case in Utah's situation. That you know their injuries have thrown that off a little bit, but in Boston's case, it wasn't just a hot streak or a couple months. It was a team that was legitimately more talented because of the addition of Isaiah Thomas. And I think that's what the projection, part of what the projection systems were picking up on, along with the fact that you just had such a relatively young roster that those guys were all going to, you know, continue to improve or. On average, we're all going to continue to improve. You know, as it turns out, someone like Marcus Smart doesn't take the step forward that I, I think we kind of hoped he did, he would. But you know, then you have Jared Sollinger who has solidified his starting spot and and uh, taken advantage of the fact that, as you said, David Lee wasn't a good chemistry fit. So all of that kind of came together. And I think that's what uh, that and the depth in particular is what the projection systems were seeing uh, with the Celtics preseason, their ability to really beat teams when the second unit was on the floor. I want to kind of get into that because I was just about ready to ask you, and you pretty much almost just answered my question, but I guess you can sort of further elaborate if you do. I was going to pretty much ask you what in your eyes and your calculations have been the Celtics recipe for success. And of course, you just really talked about it because whenever I ask people here, I mean, I also obviously say success in relative terms with the Celtics. I mean, obviously they're not going to win a championship, but it's perceived overachieving this year with this team and even the second half of last year. But I mean, he asked this question to the outside observers who appear on the show or the most ardent of followers, and you'll get, oh, it's you know Brad Stevens, what a coach. Uh, they play tough D, they're fourth in efficiency in, in, on defense, and they bring it every night, and Isaiah Thomas, and you really put an emphasis on the second unit there. And you even get someone who'll say, they score more points than the other team does on you know most <laughs> given nights. But you wanna, even if you want to dive a little deeper in here, Kevin. Yeah, that's that's the base level. They they outscore opponents, and uh, that, that's a pretty good way to to win a lot. That's, of I think games. that so that Baylor question, the kid the kid for Baylor probably right. would have asked, right. responded that way. 
especially if you're asking as condescendingly as the question was asked of him. But uh, yeah, I, I think that kind of all of those factors start start with the depth in a lot of ways, like the defensive ability, the fact that you know it's not one or two guys. Jake Crowder obviously has been very important. We've seen his absence since he's been out with a sprained ankle because they don't have someone else who's that size, who's that good defensively. But in the backcourt, you've got so many guys who are terrors on the ball with Smart and, and Bradley and uh, you know, then Crowder kind of plays into that role as well to compensate for the fact that Isaiah Thomas is undersized there. And then uh, the, the uh, versatility of the big men, their ability to switch a lot of pick and rolls and, and defend a variety of different types of players. I think those kind of stand out to me. And then, yeah, I mean, I, you know, from a player standpoint, I don't think the world had any idea last summer, first off, how good Isaiah Thomas was, because I think there was so much skepticism, you know, oh, he's just a six man, he's just a guy who comes in off the bench and scores, and then the way Cleveland was able to shut him down in the playoffs, you know, probably not a fluke, but not something that also was sustainable for defenses over an 82-game season. So he's been better than expected. And then Jay Crowder, people had no idea. I, I mean, even I you know, didn't think he would be this good because you didn't see the three-point shooting coming. But uh, a guy that RPM has been a fan of for a long time because of his defensive ability. No, you, you hit the nail on the head with Jay Crowder, and you did discuss Sollinger early. There's one player I want to get into, but I did want to discuss Sollinger because I think that he has a lot to do with what he's doing because he provides one component that Celtics don't have with his interior defense. I don't want to say interior defense, but his burly body and his rebounding. You've seen with Jay Crowder going out, the Celtics don't have anybody with Crowder. Likewise, that's the case with Sollinger, and in a way, the Celtics have been very fortunate not having Sollinger get hurt this year because I think he's someone who easily can with his physical conditioning, lack of the words. Uh, <laughs> what do you think his projections are long-term? I know he's young, but I'm concerned about that kid's body north of the age of 25 when that metabolism is, isn't exactly roaring and the hormone levels aren't exactly roaring. Is He's up, I believe, for a qualifying offer this year, if I'm not mistaken. He is some sort of free agent. Salary is going up, so you hear a lot of stuff like you know, $15 million a year. What do you think would be sort of a baseline projection salary-wise for a guy like him, to the best of your abilities, obviously knowing when the caps – we don't even know what the cap's going to be two, three years from now. Yeah, I mean, I think that 15 million number is pretty reasonable. That's what uh, Nate Duncan has done a really good job of explaining. That's probably going to be the salary for an average starter in the NBA going forward. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around that, but that's that's just going to be the new reality uh, starting with this summer. And I think he's he's established that he can be that kind of guy. I mean, RPM really has liked his contributions for a long time. Uh, I think you know what you're talking about. You know his his rebounding in particular at the defensive end, and then the fact that you know he's not shooting the three as much. I don't think this season, but still can space it a little bit offensively. Gives you that versatility in addition to you know the ability to to post up smaller defenders. All of that I, I think you know gives him the ability to fit in in a variety of different situations, which is interesting because I actually didn't have him projected for very many minutes before the season. I kind of thought he was going to be the odd man out in the way that it turns out. Yeah, that's what exactly we all thought it was going to be with him. Yeah. We we all thought that was was the case was going to be with him, but David Lee was such a flop, and even guys like Tyler Zeller to say he he regressed is an absolute understatement. He's coming. He surprised me. I didn't think he was going to last at all, if for no other reason, because I just didn't think he was physically fit enough to even play the full season, let alone contribute for a full season. This is a guy who's been in the league this is his fourth year, I believe. He's been KO'd two out of the three of them. So I'm 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 shocked at it too. And when you say something like fifteen million dollars a year is gonna be the case for an average starter going forward, especially when we have no idea what the cap's gonna be in two thousand eighteen, nineteen. I was even definitely I wanted to get into that too with the NBA, but I still wanna stick on the Celtics because one player of intrigue, we have mentioned him, and I know he's someone of relevance to you. Because I got to get into this, though. You were big on Marcus Smart in that 2000. <laughs> in that two, you like that, right? I do. Thank you. But you, you were big on Smart back in 2014. I mean, I think you, was he your top guy or like top like three or something like that? He was he was tossed by the statistical projection. I actually, on my personal board, went with Dante Exum number one. Okay, but he's now 
drawing a lot of heat here. Fans, you know, particularly Celtics fans, those with vested emotional interest in the team, they're, they're getting a little anxious because he's taking and then missing a lot of these shots. And thus, there are those who are getting a little impatient with his development. Chris Forsberg, uh, one of your colleagues, of course, I'm citing him too with how frequently he jumps on this show, but he put up a piece up on the Mothership's website basically pointing out, hey, the unit is still very effective offensively when he's on the court believe he's still second on the team in net rating amongst other things let alone what he does defensively what do you see with him now a year and a half two years into his career you know basically sort of act ask you kevin you know where do you feel he's at and even in comparison to the now general perception of him yeah i mean i, th- I think there was some excitement about that stretch where he started making a bunch of threes and uh, the story that that chris had was you know it was after he had had day. that the snow day, yeah, where he he had a chance to shoot, and you know that's that's just not who he is. I mean, he's not going to be a guy who's ever going to be, I think, probably even better than an average three point shooter in all likelihood over the course of his career. So I'm not surprised that that has regressed. And you know, it's hard to be a a useful NBA player when you're making 34.3 percent of your shots, but yeah, it's not brutal. impossible. Yeah, it, that that number is really striking. But it's not impossible if you're good enough at the defensive end. And, you know, I think that the numbers suggest that he is. He's kind of in that uh, I, Ricky Rubio class. I mean, obviously, Rubio is a different kind of offensive player with his playmaking ability. But, you know, a guy who, despite the fact that he's a complete non-shooter, is still valuable because he's so good at the defensive end of the court. And I think Smart is kind of fitting into that class, which is a disappointment to me because I thought – based on what he did at Oklahoma State, that he would be a useful offensive player as well, uh, a guy who would be able to create out of the pick and roll in a way that he hasn't really, you know, we saw glimpses of it during summer league last year, and then that just hasn't translated over, possibly because he had the early injuries. He had the earlier injuries last year, but it just might not be who he is. And, and, you know, I think Celtics fans may just need to accept that, okay, he's always going to be a bit of an offensive liability, but he's going to make up for it at the other end, sort of the point guard, smaller version of Tony Allen, I guess. Yeah, that that was always, that was supposed to be like the worst case scenario with Marcus Smart in the eyes of fans. And while it's not the end of the world, Kevin, it certainly to quote Bill Belichick, wasn't what we were looking for. And I don't know, I mean, you use that comparison for someone like yourself who was originally so high on the guy, high on Marcus this past summer, and now looking back on that draft, not even just looking back on that draft, but that entire year, that whole hype going into that 2014 draft, how deep it supposedly was, is it already time to drastically pull back expectations on Marcus and just kind of accept him for what you just said he is? Like, heck, it's like, let's say... If we forget that he was the sixth overall pick in the draft, do you think the perception on him would be entirely different if he was selected, say, 20th? No, for sure. I mean, expectations always set, you know, the uh, the perception of how, how a player's same production can be perceived very differently depending on that. But it turned out that that draft, I don't think, was what we all thought it was. It's going to produce some good players, certainly, but not the kind of, you know, franchise-defining superstars that we expected. Okay, real quick, the little discussion we had about the salary cap triggered something that I definitely want to touch upon, and I want to get to it before I forget, which I am very apt of doing. But last question on the South before we cut to a break and come back with you. You've seen about 85% of the season thus far. Where is this team going to settle, and is there a playoff matchup that favors this Boston team? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I like Miami's chances of maintaining this run at this point. Uh, it seems like their schedule is reasonably favorable. So I think it's it ultimately comes down probably to Boston-Atlanta for that fourth and fifth seed. With I mean, Charlotte obviously right in the mix, too. So you can't be surprised if they finish anywhere from third to six, but I think they're probably in that four or five matchup, and just the big question ends up being, do they have home court advantage for that series or not? All right, there it is. That is what we needed, Kevin. I've already made to note to myself, but I want to come back. I want to talk about the new salary cap with you and its possible implications on team construction and the league as a whole. So stay with us. You're listening to Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio. Hey, this is Larry H. Russell here, critically acclaimed author and host of Celtics Beat. And I'm privileged to be joined by Daryl Conant, former U.S. Olympic Committee strength coach and one of the leading strength and condition specialists in America. Daryl, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here, Larry. Thank you. Daryl, you're a student of the legendary bodybuilder Vince Gironda. Tell me a bit more about Vince. 
Vince Gerondo was considered the pioneer of pure natural bodybuilding. His training methods and nutritional concepts are still being incorporated in many gyms throughout the world today, and I had the privilege myself of having him as my mentor. How can we learn more about the methods of the Iron Guru? As a student of Vince Gironda, I always wanted to give back to Vince in some way. I wrote a book entitled Invincible that depicts many of Vince's programs and nutritional theories that he taught me. For more information on this book, folks can visit my website at www.darylcurrent.com. Daryl, Vince had so many methods and ideas for achieving optimal health. Care to share any while we're here? One of Vince's most popular nutritional concepts was his recommendation of eating organic, grass-fed beef to build muscle. Organic red meat is loaded with nutrients necessary for building quality muscle. As Vince would always say to me, you must eat the type of food that the muscle is made out of, red meat. Get on that path of effortless fat loss and optimal health by following the appropriate nutritional methods. And get it from the country's leading organic meat brand, American Farmers Network at AmericanFarmersNetwork.com. Have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Most sites make it complicated and they all try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. That is why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. The Celtics are out west, but will be back before you know it, and the NBA playoffs are just about upon us. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I use it to look for Celtics, Bruins, and tickets to almost all available shows and concerts anywhere in the country. SeatGeek aggregates all available tickets online into one place to save you time and money. The SeatGeek app enables you to set alerts for upcoming events, and SeatGeek themselves will let you know if ticket prices fall. Listeners, you get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how to get your $20 rebate on tickets. Download the free SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code, and enter promo code CELTICSBEAT, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code CELTICSBEAT today. Welcome back into Celtics Beat. Kevin Pelton of ESPN is our guest. Not going to waste any time. Definitely want to get to this. Kevin, I've posed this question to a lot of our guests, so it would only be wise of me to ask you. And I've been wondering myself, I've watched how good Golden State is, and not only how good they are, but how deep they are. And I remember when I had Jim Barnett on this show this past December. I remember telling him how I thought that last year's Warriors team, and obviously now this year's team, deepest team, since the 80s, Lakers and Celtics, it wasn't just a top-heavy team of two, uh, possibly three top players in the league and, and then other guys. But the Warriors and obviously even the Spurs, I mean, duh, those two teams have seemingly almost borderline all-star guys from like four to six on their roster or you know, at least former all-stars. A guy like, a guy like Andre Iguodala, he's probably having the worst season of his career, but I mean, he was a finals MVP last year as essentially a bench player. So really, with my question and what I'm getting to at here is with this rising salary cap and teams having more money to throw around, do you see it going back to where it was in the 80s where you're going to be needing to be building super teams and much deeper teams than, say, the typical NBA champion of the last 15, 20 years or so? I don't think so, and here's why. You know, there was a little bit of discussion about this at the uh, All-Star game at Adam Silver's media availability. He got asked, like, basically, why don't your rules prevent against the Warriors, you know, what they're able to do in terms of the possibility of them adding Kevin Durant this summer? And to me, it's just a total fluke of the timing of this new, you know, TV deal that's kicking in next season and causing the salary cap explosion. And then a lot of luck on the part of the Warriors and, and also the Spurs, too. So, what, you know, what's happening is the Warriors have all these guys that they signed to extensions under the old cap market that seemed fair at the time. Four years, $44 million for Steph Curry. Okay, that's, you know, a little bit of a risk because of his ankles. Uh, the the deal that they signed Clay Thompson to, yeah, he's getting maxed out. Of course, that makes sense. Draymond Green, okay, you know, he's sacrificing a little bit over the max, but, you know, that's that's what a guy's going to get. Well, now all of a sudden, all of those deals are huge bargains because of the fact that, you know, everyone else who's coming up now is going to get so much more money, and including on the, on the Warriors, the fact that Harrison Barnes, if they re-sign him this summer, will assuredly be their highest paid player next summer. So to me, you know, when you have those deals kind of expire and those players start making what they're actually worth, that kind of loophole is going to go away and get closed. 
The other aspect of it, which is an, an interesting loophole that I don't know if it will get ad- addressed at the next collective bargaining agreement, it also to some extent goes away with uh, the cap rising. But San Antonio was able to take advantage of the fact that they have these artificially low cap holds for Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green last summer. That's how they're able to go out and get LaMarcus Aldridge because of the fact that you know the, the cap is designed to project how much are these guys probably going to make as free agents. And that estimate was... I don't know, something like less than $20 million, I think, combined between those two guys. And then because of the fact that they were so much better as players, you know, the Spurs paid them $28 million or something because they could go over the cap. Just, I, and I think that that's kind of a unique thing in this period of time that's not going to exist going forward and may to some extent be addressed uh, with the next CBA. I mean, the one thing I'd like to see them do is make all salaries a percentage of the cap as opposed to a fixed figure. That way, when there is this unexpected growth in the cap, it doesn't create these, uh, if you want to say problems, but unforeseen things at least. Not to be a complete devil's advocate, Kevin, but doesn't that create the situation until, like you said, it would get rectified with some mechanisms like you, you just suggested? Um, I mean, I just – I feel it will give teams more flexibility – the good teams, the haves, even more flexibility to load up because now they're going to have more money to go out and get guys. And at the same time, those very guys would want to play there without even now having to take pay cuts the same way in the past like when a Malone – and Peyton did back in 2004. I mean, I think that's always going to be the case. I mean, obviously we saw that with Miami bigs reforming a few years ago with the way that, you know, Cleveland built around LeBron when he returned last summer. Like, stars are always going to want to put themselves in the best position to win by playing with other stars. But the big key to me about what's going on right now is that, you know, for example, if Kevin Durant did want to go to the Warriors this summer, he could do so without having to sacrifice financially at all. If you're going to do it going forward, you're going to have to make a pretty big sacrifice financially. So that's, I, I think, the difference between this period and what we'll see in the future. Yeah, see, I, I just don't think it's the franchise cornerstones. But like I said, some of the these borderline all-star guys, like I know he's not doing anything this year and he's out with an injury now. You know, the Iguodala's being able to fit guys like that on your team and, and down the line too, even when you already have top guys getting great four to six, four to seven guys who are borderline all-stars. I, I know you're familiar with it. You know, when you rank the best teams in NBA history, you've got 86 Celtics two, 87 Lakers three. Remember those teams were bringing uh, Bill Walton, a healthy Scott Wedman. I, I know they weren't at that level then, but they were former all-stars themselves. Lakers had Michael Thompson, scooped him up at the deadline, brought him off the bench. I mean, you know, Byron Scott was... Uh, was an all-star as the team's fourth best player. And, of course, we all know how top-heavy they were. So, I mean, listen, Kevin, I always defer to you, but I do wonder if that's the path we'll go, we'll go down, especially maybe in the near future, like these first few years of the cap when we just really don't know, like, what everything's going to be. I mean, I, I do probably agree that it is going to settle down maybe within, I don't know, seven, eight years, a decade, I don't know. But it still should be just interesting in where it goes, especially in the first few years. And, Listen, no qualms over here. I mean, I'd actually, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see all-time great teams again because I didn't think that anyone up until last year when the Warriors won it, that Warriors team and possibly even this one this year, like if we had the fun, and I know you do, but, but who's the best ever, which I know you've scientifically ranked because, you know, I've always been under the argument that the salary cap really began to have real effects starting in the 90s that prevented teams from becoming as deep as those Lakers and Celtics teams were in the 80s. And I know some teams rank very high on the computers, like the 99 Spurs, because they had great playoff runs and they had very good point differentials. And so, therefore, thus they rank high on a lot of these computer calculations for all-time great teams. But their competition was not nearly as strong as the 80s, and their own roster was nearly not as talented enough as those great, great teams of yonder were. And I remember earlier in the interview uh, with you, too, you were talking about how there still are a lot of challenges with basketball analytics and appropriately utilizing available data in basketball to come about accurate conclusions the same way you can in baseball. And that's what makes this really fun for you. But I think you see this here. And, Kevin, as someone who's ranked the all-time best NBA teams, the best players by position as well, what are the challenges, I mean, if there are any, in comparing these eras you know, or team to team or player to player of different time frames. 
Yeah, I mean, I think from a statistical standpoint, it's not necessarily that hard because, uh, you know, the way I estimated it for that project I did last summer, ranking the best teams of all time uh, that Nate and I ended up discussing later in the summer, you know, it was able to use minutes played one year to the next by the league as a whole to kind of estimate it. So when you have an expansion year, because of the fact that the guy who's the ninth man on one team gets drafted to the expansion team and all of a sudden is a starter, and then that ninth man is not there, so someone else plays more minutes on the existing team, everybody plays more minutes. And that's how you know that the league is less good overall because of the addition of a new team. And then by contrast, when you have a lot of talent coming into the league and a fixed number of teams, then what you see is players play fewer minutes because of the fact that there's some new guy out for those minutes. So it's not actually that hard, I think, from a statistical standpoint to compare. Now, I, I think where it becomes more challenging, and you know, a lot of my discussion with Nate revolved around this, is like, okay, how much has the league been improving over time just naturally besides for those things, those ebbs and flows like expansion and you know the merger and, and everything like that. How much has athleticism been improving? Can a, could a team from in the 80s really deal with the athleticism of a team with the 2010s? When you get into that sort of like direct comparison, that's why I think it becomes tougher. I just kind of focused on how well did you do relative to your league and how good was your league? And I also think one thing that I've always really wondered as well is it's almost virtually impossible it to cause I think a lot of it too is sort of how we calculate certain single seasons, but it's almost virtually impossible sometimes to see. I mean, this is sort of once again, it, it is a very unscientific way of looking at it. But how much effort certain teams put into regular season games? I remember the 2001 Lakers went through so many issues internally, and they pretty much cruised up until the final month of the season. They turned it on. They ripped right through the playoffs. The 06 Heat were like the most awful team I've ever seen in my life. I thought they were going to lose in the first round of the playoffs. All they had to do was win two series to win a championship. We shouldn't credit for sort of mailing in regular seasons the way they do, but how do you sort of measure almost an effort level of certain teams like that? Specifically the 01 Lakers. I think that is the example in my eyes. For sure, yeah. I mean, they're the most extreme team in this regard of all time. Because if you look based on regular season performance, they're, you know, I think – Below average, I guess I would say, among champion teams. Yeah, they close the season on an eight-game winning streak, if, if I recall. And I remember that during that streak, you were like, oh, my God, here they come. <laughs> well, they got Derek Fisher back. I don't know. I, I remember going into the conference finals against San Antonio thinking that the Spurs were going to win that series. So I, I didn't see it coming at the time. But, uh, yeah, they, they just torched everyone in the playoffs. And so I think in terms of, like, you know, peak ability – the Lakers are up there all time, probably in you know my top five teams of all time based on peak ability. It really just comes down to kind of how much you weight those two. You know how how you determine it is just basically by comparing the regular season performance to playoff performance. Once you've adjusted well for the level of competition that you faced in the playoffs, kind of guilty going down this path because I really should be saving this for the summer. I'm, I'm sorry, but I've made a point of it too, especially since this is the Celtics 30th anniversary season for the 86 team. And I've gotten some notes from our audience of, ah, LHR, how come you don't talk about the 86 team more than you do? And I largely think it's because there's such a good on product court this year that, and we really don't have to. And we've done some shows on it. Of course, Comcast has that great series. But now I've, you've got me. I'm kind of trapped in playing devil's advocate with you as a radio host. And I just got a few questions in regards to some of the adjustments you have to make. We've talked about effort level, particularly for regular season games. I think playoffs, no question. We both agree it's a better barometer. But regular season is different today. And then, and back then, one major difference was these teams didn't have private jets. I believe it was the Pistons in 89 who first started using them, and there was a Chuck Daly quote I'm almost positive of where he stated that that added four wins. Now, whether that's the case, we don't know, but we know it certainly helped. That 86 Celtics team, they lost a lot of games on the road to bad teams that one may not think they would have, say they weren't grabbing TWA flights at 4 a.m. and flying coach between back-to-back games in Milwaukee and Atlanta or whatnot. Well, we know home court advantage was a lot bigger at that point. That's you know something Tom Haberstrow uh, wrote about for ESPN last year when when home court advantage was at an all time low. It's it's since rebounded a little bit. Oh but yeah, I know. Two teams going to run the table. Looks like. <laughs> right. Yeah, which is interesting. So I think you know maybe the the Celtics probably benefited from that on the converse side, where you know they were 
what, 40 and one at home? Yes, 50 and one if you count playoffs. Right. But uh, benefited from that, and then you know it costs them on the uh, on the roadside of it. So that's that's one of I think those subjective factors that yeah, when you're like pulling the '86 Celtics through a time machine to play against the 2016 Warriors, maybe it comes into play. But to me, it's just kind of about how you did in your era. And I think the best question of all would be too when you say, well, how would the '86 Celtics do against the '16 Warriors? And every time that someone brings that up, I'm like. First off, I'm not even sure they'd be able to play their starting five against the 16 Warriors. You'd have to have Bird at power forward. You'd have, I mean, would Walton play? Because, you know, Bird wouldn't be able to play small forward now like he did 30 years ago. And McHale be able to probably be more of a center. I think that's sort of the best conversation of all. Last question, because you've been here for a while, because I want to get you out of here. You've been very generous with your time. What do you feel is the next revolution when it comes to something that teams are going to sort of unearth when it comes to getting an advantage over every other team. Like, I always laugh when people say analytics is the future of professional sports. It's like, dude, where you been? It's not 2002 <laughs> anymore. I mean, this stuff is, is more than mainstream. Where do you, but what do you think is sort of the next uh, frontier? I mean, I read a great piece in ESPN, the magazine, with Kawhi Leonard on body analytics, you know, stuff like measuring resting heart rates, uh, being able to scientifically gauge recovery and growth, appropriate nutrition. Is that where you think this is going to go? Or what do you think is sort of the next frontier here? Yeah, in terms of a frontier, I think it probably is that uh, Tom Haberstroh, who I just mentioned, has done some great work, including that Kawhi Leonard piece for that us was monitoring this. Uh, we had the we've had the privilege the last few years in Boston at the uh, Sloan Sports Conference of playing with the catapult tracking systems uh, during a pickup game, which are, are designed for much better athletes, obviously, than me and, and the other players on the court. But it you know it's a lot of fun and seeing how that works. We got to test out the the brand new uh, devices that they're rolling out right now for NBA teams that are going to give them access to even more data to link up a little bit with some of the sport view ob- observations in terms of tracking guys' movement and then also what's going on with their heart rate and and things like that. And so managing workload, trying to prevent injuries, all of that. I think that's you know where the lowest hanging fruit is so to speak at this point most of that stuff has been plucked on the you know performance you know this the statistical analysis side but you know there's still still wide differences among teams and how much they use that and uh the the just getting buy-in which i think is going to gradually happen over time it's a generational thing there are people that are going to grow up with this being part of their conversation their whole lives you know players in the league now are aware of it in a different way that players who played 20 years ago when you know they were just looking at per game stats and you know some uh, there was no tendencies in the same way that now we have synergy all of these things that players have available to it, to them they're going to be the gms in 20 years and i think the conversation about this is going to be very different then so much data that's why we got you here espn's <laughs> kevin pelton can follow kevin on twitter at k pelton thanks so much for providing us your insight man all right thanks for having me don't know why I drifted there to the greatest team ever discussion, largely because, well, I guess because of how broad Kevin's work is. Uh, but you can literally touch all the bases of them. Heck, uh, I didn't even get to the mock lottery, which was discussed a lot in the Celtics circles of the media this week. Kevin had the Celtics selecting Marquise Chris. Uh, maybe a little U-dub bias. I could have called him out on that. Maybe, maybe not. But by the way, I've... Of course, the ESPN lottery uh, had the Celtics falling to six and the Lakers getting the one, right? Like, of course. Oh, Jesus, what a coincidence that was. Uh, Anyways, get a lot of Kevin. He's very generous about making the rounds, not just on ESPN, but many podcasts. You hear him cite Nate Duncan, who he's on with a lot. David Locke, I've heard him on a few times there, who's come on our pregame shows, Mr. Locke has, but talked about smart earlier. Uh, So let's get to what was once a very popular topic on the show back in the summer months. I've strayed from it for the sake of the audience, but let's roll it here. When he talked about Boston keeping Jared Salinger, go ahead and play that clip again. Yeah, I mean, I think that 15 million number is pretty reasonable. That's what uh, Nate Duncan has done a really good job of explaining. That's probably going to be the salary for an average starter in the NBA going forward. That's unbelievable. Oh, <laughs> uh Ugh, Jesus, fifteen million bucks. Wait, where does the NBA get this TV money from? Huh? What, what what network shelled out that kind of money to make it so these guys? I, 
I hope, I hope, Kevin, you're being well compensated too, man. If if they got that money to throw around, I, I, I didn't want to get Kevin in trouble by saying that on air. Anyways, anyways, you, you know, if you had a poll, yes or no, would you give Jared Solinger a fifteen million dollar annual salary and ask the general population of basketball fans, general population of Celtics fans, who had a vague knowledge of the increase in the cap? First off, not only would roughly ninety nine point nine percent somewhere in that range vote no they would be utterly horrified if you ask them if jared selinger deserved 15 million dollars over multiple seasons horrified here it is that's what it's going to take what will likely take us somewhere likely in and around that ballpark is and i guess this is where i fume over the lack of aggression on boston's end last summer over greg monroe i mean yes i know he doesn't play much defense but come on He's going to end up costing a mere $2 million more than what you would need for Jaron Sullinger. But first off, let's just briefly touch upon Sully. Yay or nay, multi-year deal in and around $15 million, uh, $13 million, whatever. I guess, I guess I have to admit, first off, I was wrong in that I, I did honestly believe he would come up lame at some point this season because of his poor conditioning and high levels of body fat. Not sure his bones and joints were going to support that over a long season, but Stevens has done a great job managing his minutes. And yes, it's a little ridiculous that 23, 24-year-olds need their minutes managed, but Sullinger has held up, and then some. He had a bad game earlier this week against the Raptors, but listen, I, I was dead wrong on him this year. As much as I discussed him over the summer, even earlier last spring, almost a year ago now, over a year ago, that Jackie Mack piece alone came out this time, pretty much right out a year ago, dead wrong. I mean, he's not just contributing. He is, uh, he, he is in my eyes, probably the third or fourth most valuable guy on this team. Because like Kevin mentioned, and, and I know Celtics fans know this too, but Kevin brought up a very good point regarding not having Crowder here for some time now how there's no one on the roster that can do what Crowder does. And and I made that crack earlier about value over replacement. And and this here, I've brought it up in Paso Shoot, too. too. Uh, This past week, the Celtics could survive a Bradley injury or a smart injury. By by the way, I I know he's sticking it up, but they've had that earlier this year. They've they've semi-gotten away with it, although there was some ugly stretches of basketball with Smart out in January. But... Because while they would lose the versatility and depth when either of those guys go out for a time, but they still have the perimeter defense that either of those two provide from the other guy. Boston does not have another quick forward who even matches half the defensive ability that Crowder does, let alone being able to make the three-pointers. Sullinger, it's similar there too. Celts really don't have anyone else who can rebound on both sides of the glass the way Sullinger does. I mean, or even a big that can pass. They were hoping they'd get that from David Lee, obviously, but that that wasn't so. And by the way, he hasn't really made any friends in Celtics Nation with his comments this past week. I'm not even going to talk about him because I just don't want to give him the light of day. But the skill Sollinger has, no one else on this roster really has that. No one else has the bur- big burly body, the outlet passing. He's far and away the team's best rebounder. Total rebounding rate just under 20. No one's even close. Just pulled it up right now. Amir Johnson, who's playing unbelievable lately, he's at 14.6% total rebounding rates. So Sullinger is is right up there, and it is a major, major storyline. Well, not, not yet, but will be one this summer. Do you keep him and use the necessary means to keep him, which means paying him double what Jay Crowder and nearly double of what Avery Bradley are making? You got to give credit to Ainge. She was shrewd enough to lock those guys up when he did, huh? I mean, getting Crowder, getting seven-ish million for the foreseeable future when you just heard Kevin throw that 15 million number around for a solid starter. But do you do that, knowing all of what you now know, knowing that on one side, the Celtics don't have anyone on the roster with skills similar enough to Jared's, and likewise, there aren't many guys available on the market that have his skills. And if there are, they're going to cost a premium price. You know, for for example, hey, this Evan Turner's another guy you hear to sign or not to sign, and I believe you have to factor in how there's more of a surplus of his skill and body composition on than there is a guy like Sullinger. However, 
I mean, I know he's stayed healthy so far this year. There is still that concern. I'm sorry, particularly with the track record the Celtics have of not exactly being able to get players in shape to begin with being with Sullinger, uh, being David Lee in the past, Jermaine O'Neal, where they would, you know, other players, and they would get in shape going to other stops after having rough stays here. You heard me ask Kevin about what the next frontier will be, and it's going to be just that, scientifically being able to monitor recovery, growth, nutrition to maximize the health and conditioning of athletes instead of having these these goons in the gym, i.e. John Lucas, yelling at guys to give one more rep, work hard, I mean, or these absolute hacks with a nutrition license that know less than nothing about physical conditioning and appropriate eating. But there is that with Sollinger. Yes, I'm bothered by how you can't play the kid more than 25 minutes on nights with fear that he aggregate, aggravate his lower back, and, and he's 24 years old. I mean, that does not bode well for the future. So there's a lot of stuff to weigh, uh, no pun intended, even though it fit in nicely there in regards to Sollinger. Of course, this could all be moot if and when Kevin Durant's on this team next year with Blake Griffin. Uh, <laughs> uh, but if by some miracle he's not... And this scenario presents itself. Well, and Danny, we trust, right? I, I guess, but I, I still, Jesus Christ, freaking $15 million uh, annual contracts are going to be passed out like it's Halloween candy soon. And, I mean, I guess there's the demand, I guess, the demand. I, heck, we cannot complain, or at least I can't. If there's a demand for NBA basketball, well, that's why we're able to do what we do week after week. So uh, no, no qualms here. I, I will say this, though. And I will say this, speaking of written material on ESPN.com, the Ethan Strauss piece. First off, great read, great storytelling, good reporting and research, just well done journalism all around. I thought NBA fans were treated to some good ones this week, both with the Strauss piece and that Howard Beck piece, uh, who's been on this show. That deserves a shout. Anyways, how does the Strauss piece tie into here? Well, it really doesn't, but you can make a connection. I'll I'll get there. A lot to delve in there. Just another story, which... Shows you how driven Stephen Curry is and, and how much these slights continue to, to drive him. But, but oh my God, I mean, how do you not read that and lament how the shoe industry has such a vice grip on the NBA? And, and that being made so because there continues to be these lemmings. I mean, ever since that freaking Spike Lee, it's got to be the shoes. It is mind-boggling to me the amount of people who believe that or even worse, collect this crap. And make it a hobby. You got people scrambling, collecting welfare checks, making three hundred bucks a week, and then they go stampede a Footlocker and fork over two and a quarter for these shoes, either to wear because you foolishly think you can jump higher, or because you have some petty hobby like making a collection of that stuff, like it's freaking Renaissance art. And I, I know I probably just insulted a good portion of my audience, but I've always prided on being very honest and true here, and not just playing grab ass with people, but the amount of money that's in that complete bogus industry is utterly flabbergasting. And being who fall for the marketing dollar, hook, line, and sinker everywhere, all walks of life, and the shoe stuff just highlights it. Civilized people uh, do not shell out hundreds of dollars without thinking. You try on a pair of shoes, you know, oh, yeah, I like this, and, and then you go. That's what civilized people do. So, I mean, I'm not... I got no issues with my frustrations here, especially when this country is going down the drain and brand merchandise and the obsession and the money people are willing to spend for it. Money they don't have is a reason why. Um, I, <laughs> I, have a, uh, I have a very low opinion of you shoe people. So um, I, we're going to have to just wrap with that, I think. Uh, that's probably the best thing to do. Um, another political call to action, another call for anyone to please take the red pill and, and sometimes being a little aggressive and even insulting, possibly interpreted on my end. I mean, I mean it in a good hearted manner because I've always said ends justify the means. Uh, before we go, a little programming here on behalf of the network. First off, uh, let's see what we got here. First of all, uh, CLS Radio post game show. For those who are interested, it is on a semi hiatus. It is going to return on April first against Golden State, and that's going to run all the way through the playoffs, ending in mid June, right? Exactly. Um, but that is going to return on the first of April. 
taking the early stages of the West Coast trip off. But do not worry. CLNS Radio has you covered and then some. Tomorrow, that's Monday the 28th on clnsradio.com. Get the work read started off right, guys. The boys over at Celtic Stuff Live, the original Celtics podcast hosted by the two stalwarts. John Duke and Justin Poulin, they are going to be joined by Jimmy Toscano, covers the Celtics for Comcast Sportsnet, also the Garden Report, Mr. All-Everything. So catch Jimmy, Justin, and John available tomorrow, probably going to go up at around 9 a.m. or so. I've noticed in weeks past of that's when that show is usually released, but again, up sometime tomorrow. And for the Clippers game later that night, I got the pregame show available at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. You can get the first Celtics pregame show to air anywhere in the lead-up to tip. And I am going to be joined by good friend of CLNS Radio, very familiar guest to our audience, Clippers color commentator, yes, former Celtic, Michael Smith. So that is available tomorrow on the website, CLNS Radio, the leading online provider for audio-video coverage of the Boston Celtics. Download the CLNS Radio mobile app now, available for your iPhone and Android to not miss any of this. Again, tomorrow alone, Celtics Stuff Live and the pregame show available on the app and the website, clnsradio.com. So I look forward to that, which I assume that means you as well. Had another good show today. Number 150 is now in the bank. Mini milestone. But that is going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Will Rock, Hyde 209, Chuck Deeds, and Steph Legrato. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat, and you can like Celtics Beat on Facebook to keep up with the show at Facebook.com slash Celtics Beat. Also, Google Plus Celtics Beat on CLNS. Like to thank our guest, Kevin Pelton of ESPN, as well as our sponsors, SeatGeek and American Farmers Network for making this all possible. For our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, program director, Nick Gelso, and myself, the executive producer and host of Celtics Beat, I'm Larry H. Russell. See you next Sunday for another edition of Celtics Beat powered by CLNS Radio.